You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 22. We are in the final chapter of the final book of the Bible now, praise the Lord. And as I caveated my teaching last week, I'll do it again this week. Some of these things are even hard really for me to get my head around what we are seeing described to us in this text but we can read the text and try and understand it as best we can I do believe part of it is beyond our comprehension it is describing things that we can only dream of and hope for in the knowledge of God that we have but it's still amazing to get our head into it so we'll do that today we won't quite finish it so let's get into this let me pray and then we'll do a small recap heavenly father we ask now as we turn our hearts and minds towards this final chapter in your word lord that you would show us the truth that you want us to take from it that your spirit would be leading us and speaking to us now in jesus name for his sake amen okay so let me just recap briefly where we are getting up to revelation chapter two because it's a continuation there's really no chapter break in the greek it goes straight in to this text today so the apostle john the author of this book he's been given now chapter upon chapter of these amazing prophecies of the final years leading up to the return of jesus we saw in chapter 19 that momentous event where christ breaks through the clouds and he comes to this earth deals with those who oppose him who are on this earth that are opposing him they are dealt with and then we move into that period called the kingdom where christ is ruling and reigning in jerusalem for that period it's a period of peace and blessing like never known on this earth before a period that brings many of the covenant promises from the bible to their fulfillment and then after that this is a very quick summary we saw satan was bound thrown into the lake of fire and dealt with once and for all never again to deceive the nations or cause any of the pain and suffering that he does and then in chapter 21 we got our first glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth this eternal home of the redeemed and we corrected the notion that many people have that heaven is just some spiritual realm where we have a load of disembodied spirits wandering around. That was never the Christian teaching on heaven. The Christian teaching on heading, head, heaven is basically that the body is created, it is glorious, it was for God's purpose that humans could be social beings and sin corrupted that but in the new heavens and the new earth we will be embodied in the same way as Jesus was in his glorified resurrected body here. So that is one of the things that we see corrected here and that is really what we mean when we say heaven as Christians as our eternal destiny the final end there that is what we've been reading about in revelation chapter 21 and in 21 we saw the focus of the new jerusalem and the new heavens was chapters was verses three and four i'll read it to you for context it says and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of god is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and god himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes there will no longer be any death no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away and this is really where the grand story of humanity is getting us to this is the end goal of the cross why jesus came why he redeems us why we sit here as a church today worshiping him today because ultimately we want to be in that position again where we have such close intimacy and worship with god that it's said that he dwells with us and we dwell with him that is it that's the goal that's the purpose of this whole existence this thing called life that we have and that is why we see dimly now it says 
We experience just a taste of this as we worship the Lord. One day we'll see that in its full expression. This is what the New Jerusalem is all about. And we see that holy city in Revelation 21 prepared, it says, as a bride for her husband. And the scene is again, like we said, the bride at the end of the aisle, the husband at the front, turning and seeing the most beautiful thing. This is what John experiences with the New Jerusalem coming from heaven. We get that unusual description of its gates and its walls, something we can't really comprehend, translucent gold, precious stones everywhere. It seems to be the idea is that these things are all transparent because they radiate the glory of God, that bright shining light, the Shekinah, that is just present throughout the whole city. And then briefly at the end of chapter 21, we saw a small bit about life in this new age. We saw it said the kings of the earth come through the gates of the new Jerusalem. So these are presumably residents of the new heaven and the new earth, redeemed people, showing us again that there is a societal function going on at this time. They have free and constant access into the new Jerusalem, which if you remember, we described as a holy of holies. If you remember the tabernacle and the temple that we have on this earth that King David and Solomon built, in the centre of it, it had that small area called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God would dwell in the cloud and it was veiled off and all of that. At this time, the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies for the New Earth. That's the concept, and we're really going to dig into that today as it comes out again, but I just want you to have that in your head. So then let's move in to chapter 22. It's a continuation of thought describing life in the New Jerusalem. Chapter 22, verse 1, he says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here I believe we get to see this centerpiece of the Holy of Holies. Remember in the temple function, you had the temple, the Holy of Holies was the centre of that. In the New Jerusalem, which is all a Holy of Holies, we still have a centre. And what do we find right at the centre again? A throne. It seems, you see how much a throne has come up in Revelation. All the way through this thing, we are, it is emphasised to us that there is a king and his name is Jesus. That's why it said he was the king of kings. And now we're going to see that even in the New Jerusalem, at the centre of the New Jerusalem, there is a throne. But it's also described not just as the throne of David, like Jesus when he ruled from this earth, or the throne of God the Father. It, these two things are combined at this moment. From the throne of God and of the Lamb. No longer are they separated like they were in this age. Here we see them almost merged into one. And this makes perfect sense. Remember we studied that when death was defeated, at that moment at the end of the kingdom, it says that Jesus handed over all authority back to the Father, handed over the kingdom back to the Father, and we move on into this new age here. Now, if you're having trouble thinking, what is he talking about? I understand. Like, this stuff is, it is hard to understand. It is a small glimpse of the glories that await the believer. Right now, we just have two chapters of them at the end of the Bible, but they are a fitting end to everything that goes before. So you can dream and ponder on them, dwell, meditate on these texts. That's what we do. The throne of God and of the Lamb. And it says there is river of the water of life. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week because we saw that Jesus offered this water of life to anyone who thirsted. Do you remember that expression? And we talked about this river of life being a symbol of redemption. And the important thing, even today, when you see a river, people want to know where the head of the river is, the source of the river. You trace it right back. Where's the water coming from? Ultimately, is the point. 
and that is the same point that we have here. Again, if you look now to the source of this river, we have the source of this river, it's coming from the throne of God. That is the source. So the point being in the symbolism that's being portrayed here, the river of life, all life, eternal life, redemption, spiritual life, sustenance, whatever you want to refer to it as, all of that finds its source from God. There is no other entity that can create life. In fact, everything we see in this world, the only thing, if you break from that source of life, you get death. That's why death entered this world, when mankind rejected and sinned against God. That is what the whole story has been about. That is why death was the last enemy that Christ defeated. And that is why there is no more death, no more pain, no more suffering in the new heavens and the new earth, because this river of life, the source of all life, is throwing, flowing directly from the throne of God throughout the entire creation. It's like something we can't ever really get our head around, but that is what we have being described to us here. God himself is the source of all life. Now, we find this, though, throughout the whole Bible, even in this age, this concept of water and life. Right back in Jeremiah, when Israel, before Christ at these times, BC, Jeremiah is prophesying to Israel because they are straying from God. And he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So right back, even hundreds of, hundreds of years ago, we see this time where the Lord is describing himself as a fountain of living water. And that is a theme that carries on throughout the whole Bible. 500 years forward from the time of Jeremiah, we come to the first century, and we see another rabbi who goes around describing himself as living water. His name is Jesus. John 4, he says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. It's the same concept. So you see God the Father said it to Israel, Jesus Christ said it to the people his day, just as he says it to all of us throughout this age. Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the same as having this living water. And I think what we're going to see in the New Jerusalem is basically the fullest expression of this that we can ever see, the actual river flowing from the throne of God. So the picture being supplied here is that there will be a time when there will be abundant spiritual supply for all of those who thirsted and drank from that water in this age, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Jerusalem, it seems through whatever way that these rivers are distributing the blessings of God throughout the new creation. Verse 2, it says, In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's one of those interesting things, the tree of life. Everyone's heard of the tree of life, haven't they? Because it goes on through popular culture. There are a number of things, if you go through most religions or ancient tribal beliefs across the world, that seem to bear a resemblance to things found in the Bible. And that is absolutely because they do. The tree of life is one of them. The waters of life is another. A great flood that came across the earth is another. A small family that survived that flood is another. Most people across the world have something to do with that in one of their traditions of how they came to this earth. And the reason being, biblical history explains this to us. Back in the early days when mankind, when the earth was all one, mankind lived together, it was the Tower of Babel that spread man out across the world and they each carried these traditions from the original biblical stories with them and obviously they got corrupted over time as they moved away and different things got added to them. But it's interesting that you find all of these things, common themes that come from the Bible. 
Now, if we arose at different times through different evolutionary processes, it's very unusual that every group would somehow end up with the same kind of belief system. The biblical history explains this much better. It's just one of those things that we have, the tree of life. But let's talk about the tree of life a little bit, because as I was studying this, I really wanted to dig in to see what this was. I feel like I opened up a treasure chest of blessing here, and I only had time to scoop a bit of gold from the top, and I'll try and give that to you today. But I feel like there's much more that could be said on this. So we see this tree of life. And when we, as biblical people, study students of the Bible, we read the tree of life, our mind should immediately take us straight back to the first book of the Bible. Often you'll find with the last book, we have connections with the first book. That seems to make sense there. This was the first time we saw the tree of life, right back in the Garden of Eden. The tree functioned the same way. It seemed to be a way of accessing eternal life, i.e. communion with God in that sense where you are part of the life he gives out. Genesis 2 verse 9, this is the command. He says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the original creation that God had for Adam and Eve. We know the story, obviously. Genesis 3 verse 22, The Lord said, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, this is important what we have going on here. The tree of life was in the original Eden. This was a time when there was no sin in the world at this point. It was paradise, basically, for Adam and Eve. And it said that God dwelt with them. God walked with them in the garden. So you have this picture of God and his people dwelling with unhindered unity and access to one another. That's the point that we have there. But something happened that broke that. The story is Adam was tempted to disobey God. He ate from the thing that God commanded not to do. And then he realized that this whole concept of good and evil, and it, we call that the fall. This is a massive issue. The unity between God and man was broken at that point. That is when death came into the world, because you were separated from the source of life. That's how it goes. But then you have this unusual episode where man in his new state, a state that dies, basically, people, people die, they can no longer have access to the tree of life in that state because they're now separated from God. So God said, right, you have to leave the garden, and he put an angel there to make sure that they could not get back. Now, this sounds very unusual to us, but the symbolism is huge here that is going on throughout the whole Bible. In fact, this is a concept that I think we see replicated throughout the Bible. We have to understand, we just read it in Revelation 21, the ultimate aim of the New Jerusalem is to have a place once again where God will dwell with his people, right back like he did in the Garden of Eden, in that sense. So that you have these two ends with this same aim. God's desire has always been to reopen that dwelling place, you could say, to make sure that people have access again to the tree of life, that tree of life that is supported by the living waters that come from God. And he always had this picture in his mind when Moses and the Israelites were going through the wilderness and he asked them to build this tabernacle. How did he describe the tabernacle? I want you to build a place where I can dwell again in the midst of my people. Except he couldn't just dwell with them freely because everyone, there was so much sin in the world, so everyone was separated from him. But he had this little box, this little square area in the Holy of Holies where he would dwell. 
and he would come down in the light and lead them through the desert and things like that. Same with the temple that King Solomon built, just a bigger version of the tabernacle. And that's always been there. And we looked at the temple a little bit. I want to go back to the temple now and explore this theme of the Holy of Holies and the cherubim because it gives us insight into what we're reading here. So I'm going to read from 1 Kings 6 for a little moment. Now follow me here to see the correspondence. Hopefully I can make this clear to you. Solomon finishes building the temple. This is the temple that that was in Jerusalem at this time, still the place where they call the Temple Mount. In 1 Kings 16, after he's finished, it says this, verse 19. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. Now pay attention. Look at those dimensions. Same in the length, the width, and the height. Perfect cube. You remember last week, Revelation chapter 21, John is told to measure the city. We see this angel measuring the city. And what does it say? The length of the city, it says, its length and its width and its height are equal. It's exactly the same, obviously smaller, but it's exactly the same. This is the concept. Remember, the city is a holy of holies. They're both described in this way. The measurements are are identical in the sense that the length, the width, and the height are the same. And then look at the materials. You have, obviously, three things. The first being the presence of God. The holy of holies was built so the presence of God could dwell there. The new Jerusalem is so the presence of God can dwell there with his people. But then you have, we read it last week, gold. The streets made literally of gold to radiate the presence of God. In the Holy of Holies, everything overlaid with gold. And what else? Wood, a tree, cedar wood, a tree. What do we just read in the New Jerusalem? Streets made of gold, throne of God, God dwelling there, and a tree, the tree of life on each side. You see these parallels forming. The New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies, but expanded to be the dwelling place for all people, not just a small 20-cube area in the tabernacle like it was on this earth. But let's look a little bit further at this. That's just one parallel. In 1 Kings, further down in verse 21, it says, So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. And we know from parallels, I won't read the parallels, I'll read just one of them. Second Chronicles, it says that he made the veil of violet, purple, crimson and fine linen and he hung it on these chains basically. So he separated the Holy of Holies from the rest by this purple veil and it says, and he worked cherubim on the veil. Now this is the important part. So think about what we have here. Once again, now, we see cherubim guarding the access to the presence of God. This is exactly what happened when the fall happened in the Garden of Eden. They were removed, a cherubim was put there to guard access to the Tree of Life, symbolising the presence of God and union with him. And in these new tabernacle temple that God has the nation Israel build, he does the same thing. He puts a veil in front of it, the access is closed off to everyone except the high priest once a year, and within, on that curtain, he has these cherubim put there. And it's not just for decoration, I believe. It's, this is the point that it's making. It functions basically in the same way. So you have, in Eden, you had paradise. 
God and man dwelling together. In the New Jerusalem, you have paradise, God and man dwelling together. Access to the tree of life, access to the tree of life. But then something happened, and you get all this time in between, of which we are still in that time in between now, where we don't have free access to to God, to the tree of life. We have to have a way to come through that veil. We have to have a way to make those cherubim move out the way, don't we, so that we can have access to life. And this is the point, really, of the entire rest of the story of the Bible. What is the source of eternal life now? The cross of Christ, isn't it? Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And listen to how that is described in the Old Testament. Well, I'll read it from the New Testament, quoting the Old. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs, not on a cross, it says here, who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Who hangs on a tree. You can appreciate the symbolism that's going on here. Now what happened when Christ was hanging on that tree, on that cross? And the Lord placed all of those sins upon him And he did that work of atonement for us. We read about it in Matthew 27, 51. And this is the point. Have this new Jerusalem concept, this holy of holy concept in your mind here and you'll understand it. This veil that's decorated with cherubim symbolising that we have no access to God. At that moment when Christ died on the cross, it says this. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Like it's so, we read over that, so we just don't really think much of that. But this is what is happening here right now, like it was in Eden, like it will be in the New Jerusalem. That way to God is opened again through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the tree of life. In this age, between Eden and New Jerusalem, the tree of life is still with us, but it is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the point. That is the only thing that can give you access to God there. And I'd love to explore that more, but I feel like there's a lot more I could get out of that. But we'll leave it there today. But the veil was torn, the cherubim removed. We as believers now have access boldly to the throne of God, the tree of life and the living waters. And we see them fully realised in the new Jerusalem. But you have to have the tree of life now if you want to get to see them in the new Jerusalem. That's the point. It says, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we seem to see now that this tree of life in the New Jerusalem provides sustenance for the new creation. And it seems to indicate that there is still a measure of time here. It talks about months. People are divided whether this is actually months as we know it in any way, or whether it's just using an anthropomorphic expression that humans can understand. Uh, Jury's out on that one. For the healing of the nations. Now, people immediately ask the question, why do the nations need healing if you're talking about a perfect, like a perfect world where there is no sin, death, suffering, and all these sorts of things? It's, it, people, you know, huge amounts of commentators going back and forth on this. The issue is really one of language and the one of usage. When we say healing, of course, in our context, we immediately just think someone's sick, they need a doctor, and they need healing. That's the idea. In this, that's not really the idea here. The word in Greek is from where we get the word therapeutic, It means health-giving, life-giving, like a vitamin, we would say, would probably be the nearest thing today. So it seems to be that in this new world, it's not that people are sick, but it's that all goodness and the source of life comes from God, who feels the tree of life, 
the tree of life goes to the nations. It seems to be the system that he has in place to spread his goodness across the world. However that may be, like I said, we've got no basis for experience or knowledge of what this is actually describing. We just have to take it as it says in the word of God. It seems to imply, though, that the life of God coming from the throne of God, from the river of God, is bearing fruit for the nations, these kings of the earth. Everyone who is redeemed will be taking access and having access to that tree. Again, it's back to like it was in Eden, remember. You have access to the tree. God's now given us access to him. And not just a couple of people. This is the whole new Jerusalem now, the whole of the redeemed earth. Everyone here has access to that river of life. Let's look at verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So again here we have a connection with Genesis. Just as we read, and I've just explained to you, the curse happened, that the world was fallen and broken in Eden. Now it is reversed. The curse is totally gone. That means everything that goes with it, all the death and the suffering, the pain, all that sort of stuff. That's why the New Jerusalem is different. The old order has gone. God will be in our midst in the New Jerusalem, and it says his bondservants will serve him. Now this is really the fulfilment and proclamation of what we read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, the tabernacle of God is to dwell with men. Now what does it mean to serve him? Now this is because a lot of people don't like that term today, but we have to understand it within the context of the Bible, not through the history of 20th century exploits. Serve him, this is carrying out religious duties in a spirit of worship. This is what most people come to church to do. This is what our lives are ordered around in many ways and it's what we do out of an overflow of our heart. We don't do it from burden or compulsion or any reason that we have to. We don't do it to earn salvation, to earn favour with God. No, this is an overflow of our heart because we understand what he did for us, therefore we willingly serve him. That's why we come here and worship every day. And in the New Jerusalem, it seems to be that we have that same concept and same understanding, but probably times a million, like we can't imagine, we see it in all its fullness. There's no burden in our serving, no resentment, no moaning, no complaining, no toil, no exploitation, no one is overworked, no one is suffering from exhaustion and burnout, but we are serving nonetheless. We're not idle. The new creation is not to be floating around on clouds, doing nothing. Service is joyful. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were dwelling with God? They were told to take care of the world, tend the garden, do these things. That was considered service. So this is a multifaceted term. It doesn't just mean coming and singing praises, like we're all going to be just singing non-stop the whole time. It seems to indicate that within the social structure of the new heavens and the new earth, there's much to do. But because we're totally righteous, we're saved, what we do is service and we do it for the glory of God and we enjoy doing that. And it's satisfying and it's fulfilling because we're finally fulfilling the purpose for which we were made. Service is joyful. It's an outworking of our heart. And we see this even now in this age. This should be the desire of our heart. Psalm 27 verse 4, the psalmist said, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And that is really what we see being fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. We will dwell in the house of the Lord. The whole, except it's not just a house, it's an entire creation at this point. We will all dwell there and we will behold the beauty of the Lord radiating through the new Jerusalem like we've never seen possible. Verse 4, it says, They will see his face. 
and his name will be on their foreheads. So now again, we see the ultimate fulfilment of what we looked at last time. The tabernacle of God is among men, dwelling with God. We see God's face. We see God's face. Now that has always been the desire of his people, yet it's always been kind of out of reach. Remember when Moses first asked God, let me see your glory. In Exodus 33, he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. The idea being that man in our sinful, broken state, separated from him, we cannot peer upon the grazing beauty and glory of God because it it's too much for us. That's, that was the idea at that time. And he said to Moses, I'll let you hide in the rock and my glory will pass by you. That's the best you'll get at this stage. So we've only ever throughout the Bible had these glimpses of his glory in a veiled way. Jesus allowed his disciples, Peter, James and John, to see his glory in a slightly more revealed way. We call it the transfiguration, where he took them up to the mountain and for that brief moment he unveiled his glory and he shone like the sun. That's the same sort of thing that we have going on here. But generally, the sin and corruption of this age has precluded us from seeing the glory in its fullness. Yet, those who know the Lord, love the Lord, we still desire to see it more than we do. That's the idea here. Even Job, that old saint, one of the oldest books we have in the Bible, in Job 19, he says, As for me, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, my heart faints within me. Even this old man had that hope of resurrection and future where he would be with God dwelling and he would see him, and he said it makes his heart faint that he's longing for that so much. We saw it in number six, the priestly prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you and make us what? His face shine upon you. His countenance, the glory and blessing of being in his presence was to radiate onto us. The idea being that we're so close to him that we reflect the glory of God that we see happen. Like Moses when he was glowing when he came down from the mountain. This is the idea that we have here. We are commanded to seek this. Psalm 24. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteous from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face, even Jacob. They seek his face. Israel seeks his face. We should be seeking his face. And we have a greater revelation of his character than the Israelites did in many ways. Where do we find this illuminating light revealing the face of Christ to us? In Jesus, ultimately. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said that light shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That face of Christ Jesus is our ultimate desire. Now in the new Jerusalem, in the city-wide Holy of Holies, once again where man is dwelling with God, where there's no cherubim guarding the gates, the river of life and the tree of life are ours. Here we finally see in perfect righteousness that we have given, been given by Christ, we can finally see that fulfilled desire of all the saints of all the ages ever since we fell, no longer seeing in a mirror dimly, but now seeing him face to face. That is the future of the new Jerusalem, and it will be the most glorious sight we ever behold. It seems to imply that it will be a sight that will keep us in rapt attention for all of eternity, as the glory radiating from Christ radiates throughout the entire New Jerusalem. Its very architecture seems to be designed for that purpose, the face of Jesus Christ. And it always reminds me, I know I've shared it with you before, of that little illustration of Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer, 
who was blind at a very young age. Well, she was young, she was blind. She served the Lord faithfully, wrote over 9,000 hymns all of her life, expressing the desire to see God face to face. And she, said, she shares a story where she was sitting at a piano, writing a hymn, and she overheard two oldest believers, and they said, it's a shame that God would take away the gift of sight from such a talented woman. To which she immediately turned and replied and said, if I had it my way, I would have been born blind. For when I get to heaven, the first face I would ever see would be that of my saviour. I love that story. And it's such a nice thought, this woman who was blind her whole life, she just wanted to see the face of Jesus. That was the pursuit, that was her desire. That is what we have on this age. That is what we see fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. And it says his name will be on their foreheads. And here is again the ultimate fulfilment of a promise we saw at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the church to Philadelphia. You remember this all the way back, so over a year ago, this promise, he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, my new name. It's the ultimate fulfilment of the promises that we see. We are his, we are claimed by him, we are adopted by him, and because of that we are raised up to a level of glory where we can now dwell with God in his home. No longer is he coming down here, we dwell in his new home, the new creation, the new earth. We are his. We are forever identified with him. And seeing as that is our ultimate future, and we are no less his now, in this age right now, if you're born again, you are adopted already by him, you are his child, we should also find our identity in him now in this age. And I say that because I know identity is a big issue for people this day and age, people always struggling for identity. Your identity is to be found in Jesus Christ. It's quite literally written on you at this point, <laughs> spiritually now in this sense, and then moving forward into the new Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. There will no longer be any night, they will not have need of the light of the Lamb nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. He summarises again here really what he told us last week. God's glory is sufficient to light this city. 1 John 1 5. This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. That's how really he can do this. And it says we will reign forever with him. Not just reigning with him in the kingdom, reigning with him forever. And this is an amazing thought. Us, the lowest really of all, sinners, broken by grace, but also saved by grace through faith. We are then raised up with him to be rulers in the new age. Forever. That is again really a display of his grace to mankind and his love. Verse 6, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So that's it. The vision is now over. This glimpse into the new Jerusalem is done. And we move on to really what is just the epilogue of this book. But again, we see here a reminder. We've seen these words a few times in this last section. These words are faithful and true. It's a reminder again for anyone who's reading and thinking this is just too much to understand it, this is too good, it cannot be true. Jesus Christ reminds us these words are faithful and true. And it goes on, he says, the God basically who inspired the prophets of all the ages 
the one you can trust because throughout the years of history we've seen God's prophecies fulfilled over and over again. You can trust this. It's the same one who inspired what John writes to you now. This is true, all of them. He says, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the word of the prophecy of this book. Now quickly in that sense, it's present tense. So it means I'm already coming. As in things are in motion, things are starting. It's not necessarily referring to the time in the way that we would think about it in that sense. It means that things are ready. Basically, it's, an, it's a call for urgency to anyone who reads it. Be ready. Things are already happening, moving towards this direction. And blessed is he, this is the sixth of seven blessings we find in the book, to the one who heeds, or better it says, keeps the word of this book. And this is a point. The word of prophecy, the Bible, is meant to push us towards the Lord, towards obedience to the Lord, It's not just to give us a tantalising vision of the future, but it is to provide motivation for godly living in light of his soon return and judgment. That is really what prophecy should do for us. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. John here names himself as the author of this book and he interjects again that he seems to be so overcome with everything he's just seen, the only thing he can do is fall down and start trying to worship the angel in front of him. To which the angel immediately says, stop doing that. Like he had to tell him one time before, I am but a mere servant, the same as you, John, we follow the Lord, worship God. That is where everything points to. He is the creator of all you've just seen. He is the one that made everything we read about in this vision that you've just had possible. We read earlier that to him alone belong all the power and all the glory. To Jesus alone we are to worship. That is really the resounding theme of this book in many ways too. Verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Unlike other prophets, such as Daniel, who was told to seal up his prophecy because they're for a time of the end, John now is told not to seal up, as in, this needs to go out to all the world. People need to know this. It's for the time of the end. The time is also near. And in many ways, that means the time element is before or after the cross. Once the resurrection has happened, we're ready for this final period. And now we know it's been a long time. That's, again, also God's grace whilst people are getting saved. But that's where we have here. We are told it's near. And verse 11 is an unusual verse. It seems to come slightly out out of the blue for everything we've been reading about here where it says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. It's phrased slightly unusually. It's not God saying, I want all those, I don't want everyone to come to Lord, I just want people to do wrong. What it's basically saying here, it's a little unusual, but it's basically saying, there will be those who hear the word of God. This message that he's given in the book of Revelation, and they reject it, and it makes them do more evil. And we see that in this world. You've probably had that example. People who reject the word of God because they love doing the things that God has told them not to do. These are the ones that throughout this whole book, he's been warning, don't do that. Drink from the river of life, 
have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it basically says, at a certain point, there will be those who hear the message and they reject the message. And those ones will go on doing the things that they do and it will be the ones who die in their sins and that is why they end up in the fate that they do. But for those who are righteous, those who are holy, those who have washed themselves, been given that righteousness through Jesus Christ, the message will spur them on to greater holy living at this time. And that's the two effects that we see. That's what preaching ultimately does. It's to draw those two conclusions out. People will reject, people will accept the message. The righteous are saved and they keep the words of this book. And we could say basically, for all of us here, for anyone really, if you've heard the message of this book, the whole point of God's creation, his cross, everything that he's done, and it does not draw you to the Lord in the sense that you want to change your life and get right with God, i.e. be saved, you are in a very precarious position. And when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, the time is near, watch, be sober, be ready, he is talking to you at that moment. Like That is the thing, be ready. And how do you be ready? You make sure you have those robes that are given to you by Christ washed in the righteousness of God, be saved, basically, is what it means. If not, everything that we've just studied in Revelation from chapters 4, really, to 19, are related to you. This is God's judgment when he wants his earth back and he comes back and all those who are not his do not belong on this earth. He has allowed you to be here as squatters for that period of time. Revelation is the time where he comes back and says, I'm taking back my earth. And this is the whole point. This is why he says, soon, be ready. His return is quickly approaching, and in many sense, the Greek in the present tense kind of implies it's already underway in the sense that things are already happening. He comes, it says he will bring rewards, or he will bring punishment. And this is again from Revelation chapter 8, where he says the dead will be judged. He's talking about judgments and those sorts of things. I won't recap that. But the emphasis of this is really on the urgency that we see, the readiness of these events. And he ends it in verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He said that a lot throughout this book. He said it right at the beginning of this book. It evokes the name that implies God is eternal. The beginning, the end, the first and the last. Everything is in between God, basically. God used it of himself in the Old Testament. Jesus applied it to himself in the book of Revelation. The point being, it's a clear statement that Jesus Christ is God. Many people, you say, Jesus Christ never called himself God. He did over and over again. He just did it in a very Jewish way where he would use titles attributed to God and he would attribute them to himself. This is one of them, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But in this context, he's doing that, evoking that, that he is God basically at this time because only God is the one who has the authority to render judgment and rewards and allow access into his kingdom. That is the point there. No one else does that. No, no church body, no religion or anything else. It's God and God alone that has that authority and whoever God gives it to. A final, clear, undeniable statement that Jesus is the one with the right to proclaim and administer justice. And again, you sense the urgency in his thing here. If that's true, What's the book of Revelation going to do to you? What's the message of the book? How are you responding to it? Are you just going to continue doing what you do, like it said just there in the verse, or are you going to heed the warnings and keep the words of this book? Now, we're going to leave it there for this study, because next time what I'm going to do, rather than just finish these final few verses that are, again, really just warnings and exhortations, I'm going to go back and we're going to sum up the entire book 
every single chapter in a small way and lead us back up to these final words. So I want to bring it all together for us in one session and we'll finish it with these final words of the book. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.